Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus, funded by the Australian Research Council, about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we're trying to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, and I recently got excited to discover that there's a car garage in Newcastle called Quantum Mechanics. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I'm Liz Bridge. I'm from Queensland. Um, and this week I've been helping PhD students with their research projects. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. And in this podcast series, we are talking with a range of Equus researchers working in universities across Australia. Today, we welcome Glenn Harris, who's a postdoctoral research fellow based at the University of Queensland. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Lachlan. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. If we start off, Glenn, with, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into quantum physics? What excites you about it? How did you choose to do this subject? Yeah, that's kind of a good question. I've had that question a number of times, actually, uh, at barbecues uh, around the place. And I, I never really know how to answer that properly, actually. I think I never really had... So in school, I didn't do particularly well in school. I got into a lot of trouble. Um, and I, but I really enjoyed physics in high school. And so I never really had this notion, this long-term notion of being a scientist or being a physicist. I just, I just like doing hard stuff. And so I did really well in physics in, in high school and uh, basically not well in anything else um, to the point where I almost didn't graduate. Uh, in fact, there's a funny story that my, my, my now wife, who, uh, who I met in high school, um, she at some point was pulled aside by the teacher. She was a straight A student. And they said, look, you really need to stop hanging around these guys <laughs> <laughs> because you're going to just go off the rails and it's going to be a disaster. Um, uh, thankfully, she's, she, uh, she, she stayed with me and we're now married with two, two children. Um, but I, I, I graduated high school. I, I left. I went to university and I was just it was just kind of short term goals. I just wanted to do things that were hard in the kind of one to six month window. And it just sort of accumulated up into an undergraduate. So I, I uh, joined uh, UQ shortly after you know, finishing school. I did a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts because I didn't know what I was going to do. And I tried as many subjects as I could and I just sort of coalesced down into majoring in physics and majoring in mathematics within the arts degree. Uh, an extended major in mathematics. And then uh, following on from that, I just uh, thought, well, the next natural progression is honours and then a PhD. And, and, and that's what I did. And I've really enjoyed every step. You know, it's been some parts have been very painful, obviously, as both of you know, um, but it's but it's very rewarding nonetheless. So I'd never had this, like I said, I never had this grand vision of being a physicist, but now that I am here, I'm glad that I took that, took that path. So that's kind of my that's a brief story as to how I got where I where I am right now. And you're obviously back in Australia at the minute, um, but you've worked abroad as well, right? Yes, that's right. So, um, so I actually did a summer scholarship in terms of the range of projects that I've worked on. I did a summer scholarship at ANU in Canberra. So I was working on heavy ion fusion down there, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I did a short stint in Denmark, working at Technical University of Denmark on a quantum optics project over there. And I spent three years at Yale University immediately after my PhD as a postdoctoral research associate working on, uh, there's a few different things. One fundamental projects that concerned phase transitions in liquid helium, as well as uh, some 
light sound interactions with, with another research group also at Yale University. And then I come back to Australia, I guess that was two, three years ago now. And I'm now a DECRA fellow, a Discovery Early Career Research Fellow at the University of Queensland. Yeah, trying to spread my wings, I guess, you know, branch out into different fields of, of physics and, and see what's hard and what I can tackle. Yeah, well, congratulations on the DECRA, Glenn. They're, they're not so easy to pick up. No, that's and, right, yes. And that highlights something I think is really important. Um, some of the quantum scientists that we've talked to on this podcast had a really clear and vivid picture sort of pulling them in mm. from an early stage and others have wandered into it through much more meandering journeys and almost by accident and i think it's exciting to point that out because there are people who might be interested in doing that and who might be freaking out oh i'm not good enough at school or you know mm. i'm not smart enough or whatever i've got some really good friends that yeah did a phd in in physics in quantum physics and um you know, they at school, they just had no idea what they wanted to do and weren't particularly studious and they were still able to, to get into it and succeed. Yeah. So quantum physics doesn't have to be quite as hard to get into as some people, I think, fear it is. Yeah, persistence goes a long way quantum <laughs> physics. You just you keep going and keep going and eventually it clicks. Yeah. And, and when it does, it's, it's very, very rewarding. And I forgot to mention that I also wandered out of physics for a little while as well. So I was working for, uh, so I've done some consulting, some private consulting before, as well as working for um, some companies that, that focused on data analysis, big data. And this was before uh, data science was even, was even a thing at university. So this was towards the end of my undergraduate. So that was almost 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always kept coming back to physics um, because it's, it's so hard, it's so diverse, it's so rich, the problems are so rich, it's never a boring day, that's for sure. And every day is different, isn't it? Every day is yeah. very different, yes, for better or worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Glenn, tell us a little bit about some of the hard problems you're working on at the moment. What's What sort of research mm. activities mm. do you get up to? And I guess one of the first questions is, do you... Do you work in a lab? Are you an experimentalist or do you work on a whiteboard? Are you a theoretician? I am predominantly a experimentalist. I have done a number of theory projects, but I keep coming back to turning dials in the lab, which is what I enjoy. You know, I'm better with a wrench in my hand than I am with a, a whiteboard marker. So, <laughs> um, so I guess I'm, I'm involved in a number of research projects at the moment. Um, there's three main ones. And they have a common theme that's bridging across all of them. And that is that common theme is using light to do very, very precise measurement of things. And usually displacement. By analogy, I can explain how, how we do those precise measurements by analogy. So if you imagine a guitar, you have a fretboard, um, those strings are very taut. There's a resonance associated to each of those strings. You know, and you can hear the pitch of each string, right? And if you pluck that, you can, hear, you can hear that very precise frequency. If I put my fingers on the fretboard, so I'm changing effectively the length of the string, I change the resonance frequency of that string and I can pick up that, that change in resonance. And you can do a similar thing with light, whereas instead of a guitar, we, we have two mirrors that are facing one another and that creates an optical cavity in much the same way that the pinched ends of the guitar string form a, an acoustic cavity. And that optical cavity has its own resonance frequency. Uh, and so it's bouncing back and forward and it sets up a resonance condition uh, with those two mirrors if they're well aligned. And in the same way, if the mirror moves, it changes the resonance frequency of that cavity. Now you don't hear it obviously, but you can interrogate it using optical detectors. And so we're looking for essentially just changes in resonance frequency of a cavity 
based on the movement of an end mirror. And that can be like phenomenally precise. Like it blows my mind still. Like if you if you get two mirrors, let's say half inch mirrors, and you and you separate them by a centimeter or so and you and you interrogate that with the laser, you can quite easily measure the precision of that mirror, the motion of that mirror down to something much, much smaller than the diameter of an atom. Wow. So you've got this microscopic mirror. And yeah, it's, it's just like it, it's it's amazing. It really is. And so the thought is, hey, that's kind of cool technology. How, how can we use that to, to do other sorts of science? And so you can functionalize that mirror. So I could put a piece of metal or other materials on the end of that mirror, and now it's magnetically active. In the presence of external magnetic fields, that's going to deform that mirror, and then you're going to pick up that magnetic field using this very precise displacement measurement. Or you can, you can make the mirror very light, and so it's sensitive to sound waves. So acoustic waves are coming in and shaking that mirror. You can also pick that up. You can also make the mirror very heavy so that when, when you try and accelerate that whole cavity, um, the inertia of that mirror then lags behind and causes a displacement. So there you've got an accelerometer, a microphone essentially, and a magnetometer built into that system. And that's one research project that I'm involved in with um, Australian Defence. That's sort of one category. I spend about 30% of my time on that. And that's very, very applications focused. And another project that I work on, which is actually the, the main focus of my uh, my DECRA brand, and that is using, again, using light to measure displacements, but it's more fundamental in the sense that I'm measuring displacements of a film of liquids. Um, and that liquid is liquid helium. So it's quite an unusual substance. Um, so if you, if you take helium gas and you cool it down, it's in a bucket, and you cool it down even more, it turns into a liquid and you keep cooling it down, it turns into what's known as a superfluid. And that superfluid has zero viscosity. So you can drag something through it and there's no resistance to motion through uh, as you're dragging something through the liquid. And that has a bunch of unusual manifestations. So one is that if you had a cup of superfluid healing, if, you, if you've ever looked side on at a glass cup that's full of water, you'll see a little meniscus. So the water will sort of curve up at the edges. And the only thing that's stopping that water from continuing up is the viscosity. So in a liquid that has no viscosity, that keeps getting thinner and thinner, and it goes down to about 10 nanometers thick, but superfluid helium creeps up the walls of the cup, will roll over the top of the cup, and then coalesce down the bottom and then drip off the bottom. And so you're just holding your cup there. It's a third fall. It'll just empty itself <laughs> over the course of you know half an hour or so. Right. And there's actually YouTube clips on this that were you know filmed in the 60s or 70s. Uh, another unusual property is that if you stir superfluid helium, nothing happens. It doesn't spin. You stir it a little bit harder and faster, and you get one unit of circulation. Oh wow! A quantized unit of circulation. And it will continue indefinitely. There's no viscosity. So it's just spinning, doing its thing. And this is a bit like a whirlpool, Glenn, right? Exactly. Yes, that's right. Yes, it's it's like a whirlpool. It's the smallest whirlpool you could possibly make. You can't make one that's spinning half as much, right? So it's a quantized unit. Right. And so there's still a lot we don't understand about liquid helium. Actually, there's an interesting fact that this macroscopic quantum phenomenon, this is a quantum phenomenon, was one of the first macroscopic quantum phenomena to ever been observed, 1910, something around there. And it's still the last to be completely described. Wow. Well, that's pretty early. Not, not a whole lot of quantum physics had been worked out by then, so it's pretty exciting. I'm just furiously checking that right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very, very early. I know that. And they didn't know what it was at the time, right? They're like, hey, this is really unusual. You know, we don't know what to make of this, um, and so on and so forth. And, and, and the quantum theory subsequently developed. Mm. 
for that. Yeah, it's incredibly challenging because it's strongly interacting. So in contrast to some other systems like dilute gas, you know, people study Bose-Einstein condensation and dilute gases. That dilute gas has a microscopic model associated to it. So essentially all of the physics is kind of worked out and you can plug and chug, whereas that's not the case for superfluid helium, just because the density is so much higher, the interactions are so much higher. It's computationally very, very challenging. That's awesome. I'm captivated by the idea of, of the world's smallest but longest lasting whirlpool. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and so we bounce laser light off, off this surface. Again, we build a cavity and, and we cover it in, in helium or fill it with helium. And then we're looking at fluctuations. Yeah. So that, those fluctuations can come from, you know, the rotation of the liquid from one quantized vortex or from acoustic waves traveling across the surface. Mm -hmm. Well, yet again, uh, for the listeners who've been tracking along with all the episodes, they've heard about um, ultra-cold fridges yes. a number of times. And it's making me think we should have called the podcast Cold as Quantum. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> yeah. because it seems to be a common theme, and it's not too hard to understand why. Uh, to access and observe quantum phenomena, you tend to want to cool down, take away a whole lot of energy, take away a whole lot of, of what we call noise, all of the other stuff that kind of gets in the way of seeing the quantum phenomena clearly. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I should say that that, that effect was uh, 1937. I said 1910, didn't I? Yeah. Still a long time ago. Yeah, I was only only a few decades <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, but given that we're we're a hundred years after that or thereabouts, you know, it was only a, it was within sensible error margin. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. At least by physicist standard, anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, so those are the projects primarily that I work on. There's a, there's a third one which uh, does not actually leverage light. Uh, working with Lockheed Martin uh, to develop radiation hard computing, uh, and that's moving away from electronics into actually back to the original forms of computing, which were mechanical computers. Hmm. So they're, they're very, very robust to radi radiation, but now we have all of the fabrication capabilities um, that were developed for electronic computation. So we're going, sort of going back to uh, mechanical computers with all of the technology that we now have to try and make small mechanical computers that are radiation tolerant. So those are my, that's what I do. So 30% on each of those products roughly. And Glenn, I think you do something with um, hydrogen as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the yeah. background and the applications of that side of things? Sure, sure. So that's a relatively new direction. That's not yet officially funded. And that's come about in the last probably six months or so. Uh, and that was through conversations I'd had with uh, Michael Harvey, who runs the Translation Research Laboratory here at, well, he's at UQ, but he works for Equus. And what we were looking at into was um, given this obscene growth in the hydrogen industry, and I think a lot of people recognize that hydrogen will play at least some role in a carbon neutral economy, uh, whether that be through um, storage, essentially generating hydrogen from electricity coming from solar panels and then storing that hydrogen gas and then converting it back to electricity at some later phase, or using it in reactions, so generating, I think, ammonia, for example, so uh, using the hydrogen itself to, to generate new chemicals. There's a very specific quantum problem in transport of huge amounts of hydrogen. Specifically, it's uh, when it's in its liquid state. So hydrogen, when you pull hydrogen out of the ground, which is what they currently mostly do, um, you don't just have individual hydrogen atoms floating around, it forms a molecule. Um, so two hydrogen atoms bond together. And there's a quantum property called spin, uh, which is sort of analogous to rotation, right? And each of these hydrogen atoms has its own spin. And when it binds together, you can get two configurations. One is both spins are pointing up 
or one spin is pointing up and one spin is pointing down. So those are the two uh, configurations that this hydrogen molecule can bond in, into. And so the issue is that when you cool that down, liquefy it, uh, it goes from a, about 70-30 ratio of this, they call it ortho and para uh, configurations, to all being in the para configuration. So that's all being one spin up, one spin down. And the issue is that that happens very slowly and it releases a lot of heat. So you, you take a big volume of helium gas, you cool it down to a liquid, and you've essentially frozen in this fraction, the 70-30 fraction of ortho to para. And then it slowly converts to all para and you boil off something like 40% of your liquid, of your liquid hydrogen, in converting the remainder of that ortho into para. Right, just taking away all of that excess heat. Yes, taking away that energy. Yeah, that process to go from one to the other is very exothermic, right? So it's releasing heat. And this has time constants of weeks, right? And so that puts a huge roadblock in transporting huge volumes of hydrogen. And so what we had proposed and what we're working on now is optical methods to determine the exact ratio of ortho to para. It's actually quite hard to determine what fraction of ortho to para you have because it's the same charge properties, has the same mass. Same chemistry, I think. Same chemistry, exactly. And so uh, it's quite challenging to do. And I think currently how they do it is they take a sample and, it, and they run that sample back to a lab where they do nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And that's a very time-consuming process. So what we're trying to do is build an optical equivalent where it's just something that's like lunchbox size that bolts onto the side of um, either a gas line or a liquid line and then in situ analyzes that fraction. It's for quality control essentially. Mm. So that you know the liquid that's going into your uh, huge shipping vessel is all para so that you won't bump into this problem halfway through on the Pacific, on the way to North America or something. Mm. My brain's racing, Glenn. That's a super exciting story. Does this problem also happen for rockets? Some rockets use liquid hydrogen as a fuel, but I suppose they don't need to store it for so long. You just fill the rocket and then burn it pretty quickly. Actually, in preparation for rocket launch, they've had it stored for a long period of time, and so it's naturally converted down. Ah. And they're not necessarily chasing the sorts of margins that businesses are chasing. Uh, in the hydrogen economy. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, a lot of the papers on this problem are by NASA, right? So if you want to learn about yeah. it, you know, NASA's kind of the authority on that. Um, so they, they've definitely bumped into this a number of times, but they, it's, it hasn't really been a problem for them because their budget's, yeah. you know, reasonably substantial and, and they don't really have yeah, the same constraints <laughs> that business might. Yeah. When you're launching rockets and you're going to throw 90% of the rocket into the sea or into space anyway, I guess <laughs> right. a, yes. a little yes. bit of extra hydrogen fuel cost is probably absorbable. <laughs> but for green vehicles, so like they're looking at hydrogen for buses, public transport and mm -hmm. personal cars as well eventually. And so presumably this is going to be an ongoing problem we need to solve to work to make sure that people aren't buying hydrogen or, or it's being made in the vehicle and yeah. it's, it's slowly evaporating. Yeah, it's not clear whether you want uh, liquid hydrogen in those applications. Okay. Certainly you want liquid hydrogen for transport, huge volume transport, right, if you're from port to port. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the jury is still out on vehicles. Mm. Um, perhaps on aircraft, you would want okay. liquid hydrogen because the, you want as much you know, volume of the stuff as you possibly can. High density. That's right. Um, but for things like buses and cars, you might not bump into that okay. issue. But, but transport, like if you were to fill this car up, you, you'd fill it up at a hydrogen station, I guess, gas station, hydrogen station. Yeah. And 
refilling that with tankers, um, it could be beneficial to be using liquid hydrogen in those in those situations. I mean, it's not it's it's not clear yet because the distribution network is not worked out. So yeah, okay. Glenn, I've thought of a technical keyword question. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned these whirlpools in the yes. in the superfluid helium, and then you talked about this quantum property of spin. Um, is is spin quantum spin of like electrons or atoms? Is that anything like the the spinning liquid in a whirlpool? It's not. No. Oh. Um, I mean, it, well, not not really. No. I mean, this is really like a rotation of the liquid, mm. or it's a a phase of the of the condensate. Um, and so that's many 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 billions or millions of particles contributing to that rotation as opposed to the intrinsic property of, of a single electron, mm. for example. Right, because for sort of atomic scale things, spin is often described by quantum physicists and it's often used for quantum technologies. You know, That's right. just like we have electronics, there's a phrase, there's a word, spintronics out there. Yes. But spin, spin is just as much a fundamental property that particles have as charge. Like electrons, people probably know electrons are negatively charged. Mm -hmm. If you start asking why, well, there's probably good answers, but... But it's just the way they are, right? And it's why do why do electrons have spin? It's just the way they are, right? That's that's what they have. Right. Yeah. You, so one key difference is you can't take away an electron spin, whereas you, yeah. you can you can generate more rotational less. You can have zero vortices okay. in your in your. Liquid. And I think you can have positive and negative ones, Glenn. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You can have clockwise and counterclockwise vortices, and they can cancel out. That's right, and they and they interact with, with one another in interesting ways, and you get these unusual shapes that are forming if you. Have have more of the spin up and, and less of the spin down. Yeah. So there's lots of very, very interesting dynamics that come about when you not just have one, but, but many vortices uh, interacting on a film or in a bulk situation. Yeah. Well, this is a great opportunity to, to clarify something for all the listeners that, they, that they've probably heard, but has always been misused. It really bothers me when people use the phrase quantum leap <laughs> to describe some significant advance you know yes. a, a quantum leap in in digital storage or a quantum leap in in renewable energy a quantum leap of course is the smallest yes. possible <laughs> change you can't have a change any smaller <laughs> yes, than a quantum yes. leap it's what you're talking about with the helium it's either no whirlpool or the smallest possible <laughs> yes. whirlpool that's one quantum leap <laughs> yeah, if you're going to boast about a product uh, a quantum leap is probably not the best way to do that <laughs> Yeah, so there you go, everyone. You can catch whoever you hear saying <laughs> yeah, that phrase exactly. next. You can catch them out. Yeah. So, Glenn, some of our guests had some interesting anecdotes or some great places they'd visited as part of their work. Have you got? Have you been to any particularly exciting conferences or met any interesting people through what you've done? Well, <laughs> so there's one thing that's definitely true about physics, and there's there's interesting people nearly in every office. It's very true. Uh, in the in, in the building. <laughs> Of all kinds of the word. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's one thing that I really like about the physics department is it's, it's uh, such a mixture of people. It's quirky. It's very, it? very quirky, yes. And it's very, very enjoyable, actually. Uh, I enjoy that so the too. Convers the conversations you have in the lunchroom can range. You don't really don't know what you're going to get, not just in the lab, but also in the lunchroom. Uh, I've got a couple of distinct memories, and one is a clean room that I visited in Switzerland, which was just 
absolutely outstanding. At the time I was doing my PhD here and you know we have a reasonably good clean room here. For the listeners, a clean room is, is a place where you do nanolithography and nanofabrication. So you make very small structures by doing precise chemical etching and precise patterning of structures onto silicon substrates. And that's borrowing, a lot of that technology is borrowed from the semiconductor industry, which makes your, your chips in your phone. And this clean room in, uh, I think it was in EPFL, it was multi-story. So I, I was just used to this little yellow box and you put on your bunny suit so that there's no dust from your hair or from your skin coming off and you multi-layer up. And, and you do this in the little antechamber usually. And I walked into their gown room and it was just this massive gown room, you know, with hundreds of gowns. And we sort of, we got gowned up and they had a clean room elevator that went between floors. <laughs> and I'd never seen that before. And clean rooms are ranked in terms of their specks of dust per, I think it's per cubic meter or it might be per square meter. And this was an incredibly highly ranked clean room, even in the elevator. There's this kind of weird elevator music and we're in our gowns and, and it's all yellow lighting as well so that your photoresist doesn't develop. You know, some chemicals are very reactive to, to blue light. Um, so that was quite striking. I only got tour of a very small fraction of it as it turns out, but it was very, very impressive. Wow. So it was more of a clean building. It was clean- it was a clean building. Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound very Swiss to the level of precision that they need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't their clean room. Maybe it was just like their just tea room. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's where they have lunch um yeah but also my time at Yale was was fantastic as well I I used to wander around and like chat to various people uh, about projects and there's just so much interesting work going on there I remember walking into the lab one day and there was this giant vat that I never knew what was in it you know in in this corridor as I was walking in I was about one and a half stories high and one of the guys that were working on it was just happened to be doing something in the base. I'm like, what, what do you do with that? And they were using that to look for dark matter. Um, so that, so they would have these giant vats of liquid cryogens and they would fill the inside of the chamber with single photon detectors. And they're looking for little bursts of light, you know, interactions that might shed some light on kind of the fundamental laws of, of nature. And they're looking particularly at dark matter candidates. And everywhere you look, there was there were kind of crazy experiments like that, people tinkering away in the labs. So that was a fantastic experience. So I, I guess, Glenn, with uh, your mention of slightly quirky people and quirky hobbies, do you want to tell the listeners about your recent adventure racing you've been doing? <laughs> Are you suggesting I'm slightly quirky, Liz? <laughs> uh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I've been called worse things. Um yeah, so so I've recently gotten into uh, adventure racing, which is a kind of an unusual sport. Throughout my PhD and most of my postdoc, I, I was doing a lot of climbing. Uh, so I'd done that for about six years, and I was looking for a new sport to to throw myself into. And a friend, a hard one, a hard a hard one. Yeah, I said I like <laughs> like hard things. Hard. So. And a friend recommended uh, adventure racing. It's sort of hard to describe. I mean, it's. It's like the worst possible mix you could imagine between Ironman and orienteering. <laughs> so you just, you've got three disciplines. You've got running, mountain bike riding, and kayaking. And you have to get to as many checkpoints as you possibly can in a fixed amount of time. So it's a nonlinear course in the sense that you have a fixed time and an unlimited distance. And the winner is the person that gets the most checkpoints in that fixed amount of time. 
And the times vary. There's short races that are, you know, three hours, six hours, 12 hours. You know, I did those in preparation for longer races and I really enjoyed the sport. And I recently went in a 24-hour race and you don't rest. You, you just go, go, go the whole time. It's very, very physically challenging, but it's also, it is the traveling salesman problem. Like you, you look at a map and you've got 50 checkpoints you have to get to and they're spread out across random locations with elevation and, and various terrain. And they're worth different points as well. Hmm. So finding the optimal solution through that is is computationally extremely hard. Like I'm not sure my desktop could do it in 24 hours. Right? Hmm. Couldn't find the optimal solution. And so, and you've got to do that while you're sleep deprived. And you yes, two a.m. Yes, and <laughs> and you have to do it with other people as well. So it's a team sport. You you, oh. you so it's teams of four, teams of two, or teams of four, and everyone has to be within 100 meters of one another at, at every time. And they, they tag the GPS location of people as well uh, to make sure that happens. And so there's, a, there's kind of an interesting, I guess, societal component to it where you're, you're trying to convince people, you know, that there'll be people navigating and then, they'll, you know, someone might get sick or might start feeling unwell or, or just want to go home, right? Mm. And so you, you're trying to, ha- you're having these conversations, you know, while you're running or while you're on a bike. <laughs> and if so i navigated in the last course and there was a couple of times where and that was a shorter race that was that was 12 hours through the day and there was a couple of times where you know we'd been running for 40 minutes and i didn't know if we were going in the right direction or not <laughs> did you let your teammates know or did you just keep going until so he must have cottoned on because as soon as it started dawning on me he started asking very pointed questions about the direction that we were going and how far it is to the next checkpoint <laughs> It turns out, and I was just playing it cool for the time being, but um, it, t- it turned out okay. But you have these very awkward conversations and they usually happen at three in the morning. It's fantastic. And the thing that I like about it mainly is that you don't have to be insanely fit. You have to be quite fit, right, obviously. But some of the best races I've known are ones that are just very, very clever with their navigation. Like it, it's very different to a triathlon, for example, whereas there's a huge cognitive aspect to this. And, and you can have the fittest person out there and they'll they'll come last because they chose the wrong you know sequence of checkpoints to you yeah um so that's what i like about the sport and i've signed up liz i don't know if i told you for no. my next race is a, is a hundred hour race <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> that one you, you do slip so apparently okay at about the, at about the 40 hour mark people start uh, losing their minds start losing their minds <laughs> it, apparently it starts with audit, auditory hallucinations Okay. Um, you start hearing voices, and that's a good sign that you probably need to get an hour or two sleep. This sounds like an experiment as well, Glenn. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of overlap to being an experimentalist, um, and also a parent. Actually, I have two two young children. Yeah. So sleep deprivation, you know, right. balancing, having arguments yeah. at three in the morning, you know, that <laughs> it's kind of part of the course. Yeah. <laughs> well, Glenn, there's there's a question we've been asking everyone. Because it's a podcast, do you have a sound that you associate with quantum? Mm. So whenever I walk into the lab, there's this weird background acoustics. And like I know when I'm in a laboratory before I even open my eyes. It's not a particular sound. It's kind of this weird auditory hum. And it's a combination of you know fans from computers and like switching equipment going on. And there's random ticks and clicks and whirs. Like this one hertz sound from pulse tube coolers and it just permeates the whole lab space and as soon as i walk in there i know like it's time to do some work you know i'm 
I'm about to measure something very precisely, probably. <laughs> so that, that yeah. sort of background hum, I think, of, of equipment going uh, yeah. is the sound of Bonham for me. Oh, that's great. Well, it sounds as if it focuses your mind to some extent. Maybe you should record it and play it to yourself as motivation and focusing music while you're out on one of these crazy races. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Glenn. Look, that has been a really interesting journey into into more than just physics. So, so thanks heaps for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, this has been able to make some things as clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. We'd love to hear your quantum questions. Send them to engage at equus.org and we'll try to answer them in future episodes. That's E-N-G-A-G-E at E-Q-U-S dot org. To learn more about quantum physics explained by experts in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Join us for another episode next week. And until then, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.